Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. But in that passage, you will note something that Matthew tells us that set the stage for this particular event that's covered in the passage. Here's what Matthew said in verse 1 of chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Matthew, if you picked it up, described this event taking place when Jesus had come down from the mountain. In other words, it's an event that took place immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, which places this event here in Luke at the same point in time. This is the same event that we just looked at being described by both the gospel writers. So the coming down has to be exactly the same. That's the so what to this. I mean, this also tells us that this sermon which Luke records preceding this event that we were looking at and I was referring to as the Sermon on the Plain, which many people do, it is the same sermon. It is the same location as the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, I raised that question before and said, I kind of think it's the same, but it doesn't matter because Jesus did repeat his messages. But now I want to make the point to you, I do believe we have good reason to believe it was exactly the same sermon that was being done. The Sermon on the Plain in Luke is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's not two different sermons at two different locations, but it's the same sermon at the same location being described differently by Matthew and Luke. While Matthew describes it taking place on a mountain, Luke is more specific by telling us that it took place on a level place on a level place as he came down from the top of the mountain where he had just selected the 12 apostles. But Luke's description simply means that he stopped and gave the sermon on a level place on the mountain as he was coming down. That means he was in a different location. It's the same place. He's just coming down. He's just letting us know that he stopped on a level place on that mountain as he came down. Luke's account of what Jesus shared is also more abbreviated than Matthew's. But again, he's recording the same sermon and not a different one. Keep in mind, unlike Matthew, and this is important as we move through the, the gospel of Luke, you know, unlike Matthew, Luke wasn't present when Jesus did these things. Let's keep that in mind. You know, he wasn't present when he did these things. He is simply compiling a summary of the events and teachings, you know, through research and interviews with the other disciples and compiling this account for his friend Theophilus. So it's going to look different than the other Gospels where the Gospel writers were absolutely present. Now, that does not mean that this account is any less inspired. It is equally inspired. The Holy Spirit is in it all, but it's just a different perspective of the same events that the Holy Spirit is now using Luke to convey to us. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 8 is the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, which this follow-on event that we just looked at reveals. And, and, And in both accounts and at the same point in time, and in basically the same sequence of events, it flows. It matches right up. And if these accounts weren't describing the same sermon, it wouldn't change the overall message, 
But it would create a scriptural conflict, and I hope you see that. It would create a scriptural conflict because the event that we're now, that we just studied on this centurion, what are the chances that there would be two centurions who went through the same thing exactly the same way? Highly unlikely. Now, I think it's important that we know the answer to this potential conflict because these are the kinds of things people point out as discrepancies in their Bibles to you. They will come to you and say, well, you know, Matthew gives an account of centurion over here, but, but over in Luke, he's talking about it here, but Luke's doing it on a plane, and, and over there it's in a mountain. So you see the Bible doesn't line things up. No, now no, you know the answer to that, and you should be able to give that to people if they challenge that. And so I just wanted to point that out to you because I thought that was rather important. It seems like a trivial point, but at the same time it's important. Here's the second thing I want you to note in this. Look again at verse 1. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Jesus, again, when he's coming down and he begins to move again, he comes to this town, Capernaum, again, not to this accidental encounter with the centurion, but he's, he's encountering as the Lord had laid it out. But Capernaum, I want to talk about Capernaum for just a moment. You know, Capernaum is a beautiful beach village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's where it's located. It's, it's sort of, in a lot of ways, in the day, it would have been uh, a, an industrial town, but it also was a, a, a resort sort of town just because of its beauty. But, but the question becomes, what, Jesus is going to make this his base of operations. So we're going to see Capernaum come up a lot now. And, and why did he make it his base of operations? That's what I want to address for a moment. Several reasons. First and foremost, to fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. Matthew clearly indicates that Jesus' operation out of Capernaum was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. This is Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Matthew 4, 13 through 16. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus being here was a fulfillment of prophecy. This was important. One of the things that Matthew did in his gospel is he spent a lot of time writing about the connections to the prophetic in the Old Testament scriptures, pairing them up, because Matthew unlike Luke, was writing primarily to Jews to show them that Jesus was their Messiah, that he was the long-promised Messiah. And so this is an important connection. This is the first and foremost reason why he would have set up home base there. Secondly, he's getting more speculative, but there's some basis to the speculation. Secondly, he would have set up operations there because it was the hometown and is the work center of several of the apostles. You see, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew all came from this town. They came from Capernaum, and by setting up shop in this city, it might have allowed these disciples to practice, with the exception of Matthew, but it would have allowed Peter, Andrew, and James to practice their fishing trade part-time to help raise support for the ministry work which they were engaging in with Jesus. Keep in mind, keep in mind, ministry work in the first century was often supplemented by part-time or even full-time secular work. It wasn't uncommon. Even the Apostle Paul worked at various times to support himself in ministry. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. 
And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, and who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Paul was a tent maker. Paul worked at times in his ministry. Now, I point that out to you simply because there are a lot of God's servants today who believe that if they are called to serve the Lord, that they should be able to quit all forms of secular work and, and simply walk by faith and trust that the Lord will provide supernaturally for them in supporting them in their work of ministry for him. Now, without taking away from that desire, which is an absolutely appropriate desire, there's nothing in and of itself that's wrong for that desire, while it's always good to be able to devote yourself to full-time working for the Lord, ministry for the Lord, it does not mean that God intends for his servants to stop working in every situation. His provision oftentimes comes through the secular employment that God himself opens the door for so that they have the means of support for the ministry work that he's called his people to do for him. You know, I experienced that personally as I was transitioning into ministry. It was, you know, we didn't have a lot of plans for ministry when the Lord was calling me because I didn't, you know, it wasn't that I didn't have a desire to teach his word, but the truth was I didn't know I didn't see myself necessarily being called. From time to time, I'd mention, oh, maybe I'll be a pastor someday, but it was more of a tongue-in-cheek kind of jokey thing than anything else. I would hear people say it to me, but I never paid much attention to it. You know, I was a career Army officer, and then when I left the Army, because the Lord was calling me out, I just figured I was going to go to work someplace, you know, maybe work in, in, you know, the the, uh, work as a contractor for the government, and, you know, I ended up you know, going into a junior ROTC assignment here at Scotland School when it existed, uh, running their program there. And I even then, I, we didn't see the full extent of where this was all going to go. So unlike a lot of people, we didn't make a lot of plans. It wasn't like we couldn't have scaled down some, but the hard part was we had school bills, we had all kinds of stuff. And so as I transitioned in ministry, and this began to happen, the work began to happen, and people started coming, and suddenly we're doing that. I knew I couldn't continue to work the way I was working at the school and do this, but at the same time, we knew that there still needed to be more finances that we had coming in, not so we could keep a life of luxury, but because we knew there were bills that still needed to be paid off, that needed to be taken care of. And so the Lord provided. I ended up being a mobile therapist and a mobile counselor and behavioral specialist with kids for an agency. And I worked with per diem hours that I could structure myself and get out and have portions of the day where I could study, but other times when I had to be out on the job. And I look back on that and realize I didn't do that just because I had to. I look back and say, yep, it was the right thing. The Lord made provision for that. He, the provision he made was by opening the doors for me to be able to do that work. And so I understand this very clear. And while having to work a secular job while fulfilling a ministry calling, it, it can be challenging, you know, and it does impede on time that can be spent doing other things. And quite frankly, you kind of lose your energy a little bit and a lot in a lot of cases because you might be working by day and then at night you're, you're, you're studying and everything else. But it doesn't mean that it's not God's intent or that it's not God's provision for you at times. And, and Paul ministered in Corinth. He worked as a tent maker throughout the week. And then on the Sabbaths, it tells us, as he went in, he filled his ministry calling. Oh, by the way, don't forget, he's with, uh, with his friends here uh, that he's living with, and, and he's discipling them at the same time. But 
you know, Paul, Paul was working and still fulfilling his calling at the same time. And, and his work that he was doing to support himself, it didn't change his ministry perspective or focus. It didn't change it at all. Ministry, what Paul knew that that's what he was called to do. And, and he did that even though he worked during the day, putting in some long and hard hours. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, we find Paul doing the same thing when he's in Ephesus. And although the passage doesn't specifically mention Paul working, we know from the details that are brought out in the passage there that Paul was doing manual labor by day to earn a living and then ministering in the school of Tyrannus during breaks in the day when he could get in there and at night in order to disciple people. Here's what it tells us in Acts 19, verses 9 through 12. Acts 19, verse 9. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, you could miss the work component in that, but it's there. It's there when it's talking about the aprons and the kerchiefs because it has to do with the work. As one commentator explains, he says, history tells us that the pattern of a workday in Ephesus was as follows. People worked from 7 to 11 o'clock in the morning, took a break during the heat of the day from 11 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and went back to work from 4 to 9 o'clock at night. Taking advantage of this schedule, Paul held classes during the afternoon when the building used by Tyrannus, the philosopher, was vacant. I'm so impressed with the servant's heart and mentality of Paul. Not only did he support himself in ministry by making tents, which is the assumption of what he was doing, ergo the aprons, right, the work the work garments that he was wearing that the people were asking for, right, so they could touch him and be healed. But he used it, in, but, but then he worked during the day, but he says, but he used his time off to teach about the things of the kingdom. So as we look at this, we, we realize it's not wrong to desire to be supported full-time in ministry, and it can even be advantageous, but it's not something to be presumed. It's not something to be presumed. The notion of full-time support in ministry was a foreign concept to most people in the first century church. It just was. They enjoyed the seasons when God made it possible, but they worked when it was necessary. And, and when they worked, it didn't change their perspective on their ministry calling. It didn't change it whatsoever. It just became the vehicle to support their calling. It was, we call it today, their tent maker job. You know, in reference to Paul, it was their tent maker job. And tent making, secular employment, didn't replace or minimize their ministry calling. It was simply the means of supplementing it in a way of, of supporting and making ministry possible. In fact, the early disciples would have considered secular employment to be an extension of their ministry. It would have been seen as an extension of the ministry, as it would have put them in the day-to-day -day world where people lived and worked. And the fact that in Acts chapter 19 and verse 12, that it tells us there that people came to Paul to get his handkerchief, literally his sweatband. That's what that handkerchief would have been, literally his sweatband. And, and, and his apron, his work apron, so that others could touch it and be healed, indicates that Paul's secular work did not limit his ministry, but it simply became an extension of his ministry. And on top of that, just imagine how many people Paul came in contact with throughout the day that he then had the opportunity to share the gospel with.
You know, I look back in my military career, and even before I know, knew that the Lord would call me to full-time work like this or to be a pastor, um, I had the opportunity to, to touch people's life in ministry. I always viewed my work in the military as ministry, even though I wasn't a chaplain, because the Army was paying me to go all over the world, constantly moving and coming in contact with more and more people. Uh, my son-in-law, who works for a corporation, has said that often, you know, he used to work for a church. And I remember our conversation when we had it. He said, you know, what would you think of me if I left working in a church to go back to secular ministry? And I said, is the Lord calling you to that? And his answer was yes. I said, then obey the Lord. And he said, you don't think that I'm betraying the Lord? And I said, well, number one, you're not betraying the Lord if you're doing what the Lord has called you to do. I said, but number two, if what you're saying is somehow that's not ministry, that's ministry, even there. And he said, that's exactly how I feel. He said, I feel like I'm going to come in contact with people who may never come to church, or at least not initially to hear the gospel, may never turn on a radio station and hear it, but I can be a living witness for them in my job. And I said to him, you will be, as long as you don't allow your job to become your focus. Doesn't mean it can't consume you. It doesn't mean it's not important. You wouldn't give it priority to be a good, good employee. But at the same time, don't let your secular work become your focus. Let Jesus remain to be your focus. And as you do that, then do your work faithfully and watch what the Lord will do with that. You know, I, I think it's an important message. And I know you might be sitting there going, well, that doesn't pertain to me because this is not a calling I have. Look, you know, in our area, I just think it's important for you guys to understand this. And I saved it for the end because it wasn't the main meat of this passage. But, you know, we, we live in an era right now where churches abound. And, and ministries are on every street corner. Parachurch ministries, everything's about ministries, you know. And, and, and they've taken on an element that's more of a profession rather than a calling. I, it's just true. It's become more of that. And, and, and as a result, wrong attitudes and, and wrong perspectives have overtaken our thinking when it comes to those who serve. Attitudes that never existed in the early church, nor were ever endorsed by Jesus for any of us. And again, it's not that full-time support of those serving in ministry is wrong. It is not wrong. It is not wrong. The scripture makes clear that it is not wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1, and 1 through 12. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, am I not an apostle? This is Paul, right? Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and, and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great deal if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul gets to the heart of the matter 
there in verse 11 where he says, if we've served you in spiritual things, don't we deserve to reap some material benefits of that service from you? The scripture's clear. Paul was clear on this point that those in the body of Christ who are being served by those in ministry have a clear responsibility to provide material support to enable them to serve more fully. And it's not wrong for a servant to desire that kind of support so that they're free of all other obligations and tentacles that would impede their ability to serve more fully. Other scriptures portray that as well. Romans 15 verse 27. Romans 15 verse 27. If it pleased them indeed and they are I'm sorry, it pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Paul reiterates what he said back in Corinthians. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. The scriptures are clear. And yet at the same time, and that's what I want you to see, and yet at the same time, it is also not something that a servant can presume will be provided. And, and, and as there are limits at times, and there are times, and there are circumstances when laboring in secular work is God's intent, and it is his support to the servant that he's called. You know, even Paul recognized this in what he was saying to the Corinthians, because if you read further into 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you're going to find that Paul ultimately willingly chose not to receive any support from them, even though he just laid out for them the reason why it wasn't wrong for him to expect that. And yet he turned around not to do that because he knew that there were people in Corinth who were spreading rumors about Paul, even within the congregation, and saying Paul's just in it for the money. And Paul did not want to be associated with that idea, and so he chose to work for that reason. He felt it was of the Lord, you see. So as for Jesus' disciples, it's quite possible here. You know, not certain, but possible that they were working part-time in Capernaum to help support their ministry work with Jesus, and that this is in part why Capernaum was chosen to serve as a base of operations in that region. You know, now you might say, well, if fulfillment of prophecy was the primary reason, why would that matter? Because God often accomplishes his ends by using things that matter in the lives of his servants, right? I remember Pastor Chuck Smith talking about one of the reasons Calvary Chapel came into existence. He was originally in the Foursquare Gospel Church, but he loved to surf. But what would happen is in the Foursquare Church, he'd go through his list of sermons that covered about three years, not line by line, as he eventually did, and realized that he'd be moving every three years. And he was in a great location where he was living. I think it was in Corona, uh, California, near the beach, and he loved surfing. And the Lord used that to entice him to start looking to stay there through a different way, got him thinking about things. Now, he didn't do that just so he could stay there, but it certainly was a motivator for him. So it may have very well been for these guys. But I hope that was worthwhile to you guys. I wanted you to understand that. You know, I would point to a great example on it and be careful. I don't want him to take that personally. But, you know, Charlie here, he works part-time for us. But, you know, there's never been a question in my mind of where his priorities are. This is his ministry. You guys are his love. It's what he does. He loves the Lord, and he loves you because he knows the Lord loves you. And even when he was out doing the census thing and getting chased down by dogs and people with shotguns on their tables, you know, as he went in to do the census, you know, it was funny. On a Sunday, I would, uh, Saturday night, it's, my wheels would start to turn about who I needed to contact and make sure things were set and to find out Charlie had already taken care of it, you know. 
He was working, yes, doing some secular stuff to support himself in the ministry because we can't give him everything that, that he would need to support himself. We're looking to do that as best we can over time. But, you know, we couldn't do that at the time, and so he worked. And there was no, it just flipped a switch and went and did that. I think that speaks well. And I think that as you look around in, at people in ministry today, you need to understand this because I think that there is a mentality that exists now within churches and within Christianity at large that kind of negates this idea and almost makes this as not ministry or of the Lord, when in reality, it can be very much of the Lord in the way he works. Amen? I hope that helps. Well, I want to give you one more reason that we're going to end. One more reason there in, in, uh, in Capernaum is that gene, you know, Jesus' gene, genealogy in Luke chapter 3 it lists a man by the name of Nahum among his ancestors, uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 25, which might indicate that Jesus would have had relatives in the city, since Capernaum means Nahum's village, right? So the likelihood is that Jesus had some relatives here, and this might have given Jesus a reason to home base there as well, because he would have had personal contacts there, a support base that might readily have been available to help them, not just to for housing and things like that, but to connect them with the people in the community itself. One more. I said one more, but I'm a pastor, so I get to add one more, right? One more. Fourth and finally, Capernaum was on multiple major trade routes. It was along a trade route, which would have had, you know, facilitated the dissemination of the gospel very easily as people would have passed through. They didn't have to travel far to get the word to go far, and that's important. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.